Welcome, everyone. I'm Tim Jamal, CEO of NAOP SoCal. I'm pleased to welcome everyone to our podcast series where we interview those who shape and drive commercial real estate in Southern California. NAOP SoCal is the premier association representing commercial real estate in Los Angeles and Orange Counties. Nearly 1,100 real estate professionals and 500 of the top commercial real estate firms in Southern California are part of the powerful NAOP SoCal network. NAOP SoCal provides unique networking, top-notch education, and public policy advocacy of our, for our members. We are very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Sandy Siegel. Sandy has been an entrepreneur in the real estate industry for over 30 years. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO, and president of Newmark Merrill Companies, which has grown to be one of the fastest growing privately held developers and owners of shopping centers in California, Colorado, and Illinois. The firm currently owns and or manages more than 90 shopping centers represent over, representing over 11 million square feet with a collective value in excess of $2 billion. Additionally, since Newmark Merrill's inception in 1997, Mr. Siegel, Sandy, has acquired, developed, and or managed and repositioned over 100 additional retail centers. He is also the chairman of Bright Street Ventures, a company he co-founded to provide more opportunities to his tenants and other owners of centers by integrating online and social platforms with, with traditional brick and mortar businesses. Sandy is active in many philanthropic, civic and industry organizations. Sandy and Newmark Merrill have been repeatedly recognized and awarded for their work and accomplishments in commercial real estate. Sandy is a graduate of UCLA, go Bruins. Uh, he has four children and first granddaughter, glad to hear that, and resides in Hidden Hills, California. So, Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, let's um, let's take us back to the beginning because uh, we have some time here. And what, tell us about where you grew up and what was that like and your experiences. <laughs> experience of growing up, it was, uh, um, you know, it had highs and lows, but it uh, gen generally ended up in the right place. The um, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, um, East Valley. So I was I was in. Um, Grew up in Van Nuys um, to a um, single mom, and I um, spent a lot of my time uh, just me and my brother because my mom had to work full time. Um, and being a young kid with a lot of free time, um, I had a whole sorts of in, um, entrepreneurial ventures that I got involved in at a fairly early age. I went to a camp for at-risk youth called uh, Camp Max Strauss, today called Camp Bob Waldorf. Totally changed my life. Had my first mentors were. The counselors at that camp. Um, I, How old uh, were you, Sandy? During during that I was, period, I was I was I was seven um, when I first went to Camp Max Strauss. Um, my first business was um, uh, taking uh, day-old donuts out of the trash at Winchell's and selling them at school for a nickel at elementary school, so I could play pinball. So um, <laughs> you know, very transformative years. And then um, I um, after you know bet between the camp and trying to find different ways to, you know, succeed. I was, I had a very, a very, very good uh, fifth grade teacher who, who taught uh, how capitalism worked. She, she invented a currency called bows and arrows. Um, I, I subsequently learned to program early, early microcomputers, uh, TRS-80s, um, Apple one and two and things like that, and started a programming business when I was 12. And I was a computer wow. programmer from the time I was 12 to I was 18. So that was sort of my early years. 
Wow. <laughs> so I would say that um, you had, I mean, I don't know if it was aspirational, but you just had the entrepreneurial bug in you, it sounds like, from from early ages. Yeah, I was, I, I was very fortunate, I think. I think my mom gave me the sense that I could accomplish anything. And, you know, you had crazy ideas, you know, you want to be an astronaut, you want to, you know, do whatever you want to do. And she always gave me some room to do that. Um, when my stepdad came to my life, when I was uh, 10, he also encouraged me. And then I was right place, right time, right? The start of the computer revolution, um, the, you know, the transferring from large computers to small computers and, and no one knew what to do with them. So they'd hire a 12 and 13 and 14 year old kid to, uh, computerize their accounting departments. And, um, so, you know, where else, where, you know, where else do you see the start of a revolution that continues today? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I, you, you talked about elementary school. What about your education, like in, in middle school or when I was, um, I'm old enough. I was junior high yeah, <laughs> when, when yeah. back I was, then. I was, I was too. Yeah, yeah, junior uh, yeah. Junior high and high school, and then I yeah. know UCLA. How how, yeah. how were those? How did those? How did that? Those experiences influence you? Um, you know, I, I think they, I think they gave me a healthy understanding that um, that the educational system definitely has a role in teaching structure, but doesn't always focus on practical skill. And, you know, I think an advantage, disadvantage for me was I was in business. You know, I I'd started making money, like I said, at 12. I was making real money by the time I was 14, 15. So, um, you know, and I had just spent six months in New York. I'd, I'd done a lot of things that, you know, for a young man or, you know, young boy at that point just was unusual. So to sit in class and be taught, you know, theory when you're living reality, there was a little bit of a contradiction there. That's tough. Um, That's yeah. Tough. It was tough. In, in a way, I wish I didn't know so much. So I would have been more open to understanding this, the, these general conceptual things. Um, but, you know, so, so I wouldn't say I became junior high, elementary and junior high, I was a pretty good student. By, by high school, I was sort of a little spoiled. I'd made, I'd made a lot of money and I, no one else in my high school had American Express cards or, you know, <laughs> could afford to go to the see plays at the Schubert. So, um, or, you know, or any of that stuff. So, so, you know, I became, I think back then I became a little of a punk and I think some of that guided me, which, you know, eventually I lost that money. I'd spent it on everything. I stopped working and I, you know, I, I had a girlfriend, a high school sweetheart, and I was spending money on her and she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to date a nerd, which is what computer guys were. And, um, you know, and then I eventually lost all the money. So I think it, it really enforced, instilled in me the idea that the end goal isn't money. The end goal is fulfillment yeah. and um, fulfillment is different than money. Um, that's a, it's a tool, not, not, not an outcome. So um, yeah, yeah, that uh, I, th those were very formative years for me. So, and I only did UCLA because my mom, when she, when she married my dad, um, never was in UCLA and dropped out to support my dad. Um, and she really wanted her two boys to finish what she did, couldn't finish, which was UCLA. So I hung in there, but as I tell people, I was on the Dean's list, just the wrong list. They, they, <laughs> they, they wanted to, they wanted to get rid of me in the worst way. Um, you know, and, you, you uh, got the probationary notices <laughs> every, every single quarter, every quarter. Yeah. Yeah. So got out by the skin of my skinny skin skin, but I get, I did, I got a degree on my wall. So, so made my mom proud. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Well, um, I guess you weren't going to Bruins football and 
basketball games or, 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 or maybe you were, I don't know. No, no. I, I went to one game where, um, Terry Donahue was pl- played for the tie against SC and, and, um, and that wasn't my thing. And, you know, truthfully, I was in a different headspace at that time. I go much more now, you know, I'm definitely go to Bruin basketball and, and Bruin football. Um, and my, my daughter ended up going to UCLA and my brother went to UCLA. So, so, um, we, we, you know, and now UCLA calls me more than I call them. So that, that, that's a good thing. I and, think I know why they call you. Yeah. You don't, you think it's for my good looks and to brag <laughs> about my academic achievement. Yeah. Yeah. So, but no, I, I enjoy going back there and I'm involved, you know, with the, uh, you know, the Zyman center and, but anyway, yeah, it, it uh, I didn't go back for 20 years. I was traumatized. I, I, I was, <laughs> I, I got out and never, never looked back and for 20 years. Well, tell me then let's go on the journey a little bit. What got you interested in commercial real estate? Yeah. So, so what happened to me was, like I said, I'd spent all my, all my computer money. My mom actually saved some of it that I didn't know about until I got married, but effectively I went broke um, in the computer business, stopped working, stopped cashing checks and did that. And, you know, I sort of went on this journey of like, what's life all about? It, it sucks to be a has-been at like 16 or 17, right? So <laughs> I went through this feeling sorry for myself stage. And then my dad said, you know, you, you got to do something. You got to, you know, basically get off this couch and do something. So got to make something of yourself, son. You make, you make something of yourself. Yeah, he was tired of me bragging about how much money I was making earlier. So he was, he was you know, he was, but anyway, so, um, you know, I actually took a job selling insurance at night um, while, I, while I was going to school, demonstrating um, computer products on the weekend. And I decided I want to do something in real estate because Tom Vu, who, you know, for people who are a little older, remember Tom Vu was a guy who would go on TV and some, you know, you know, hey, I would, I made all this money in real estate and he's sitting on a yacht surrounded by beautiful women. And so I, I decided I'd spend enough time in the virtual world wasn't really called the virtual world back then, but I'd spend enough time, you know, with a relationship with a computer. I decided I want to do something that was tangible. So I knew I wanted to get into real estate. So um, I got a temporary job computerizing an accounting department of a home builder um, when um, in 1988. So um, I take back 1984, 1984, when I was 20 years old, 1984. So um and that was a two-week assignment, and I ended up spending um, 13 years there, and ended up becoming the CEO of the company. Started their shopping center business, um, built 25 shopping centers there, and um, you know, you know, thank thankfully there were two guys there who trusted me and became my mentors, and um, you know, gave me this chance, and um, and it worked out. Worked out. And I fell in love with it. It's an amazing story. So what what. I was going to ask you about mentors and you, you just jumped into it, which is fine. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? The, what kind of support did they give to you? Was it in, you know, intellectual, was it industry? Was it more on leadership and confidence or all of the above? Yeah. So overall, about the, you know, so, you know, when I interviewed for the two week assignment, I walk into this guy's office and it was Bob Miller and, you know, God bless Bob. He's pa- he's passed away, but Bob, I'd walk in, he's your typical real estate guy. His shirt is on button, basically just to right above his belly button. Okay. He's, he's smoking <laughs> a cigar, but you know, he, he was, he's an amazing story. He had served in Vietnam. He then had a private business in Vietnam. He had, you know, built, he had built condos and made money and gone broke and come back and gone broke and formed the partnership that was this company that he started called West Venture. And he, you know, he loved technology and he loved 
mentoring people. And, you know, here comes a 20 year old kid who knows computers and he just took me under his wing. And, um, you know, you could tell he was, a, he was a survivor, uh, but he, you know, he, he was the guy, um, you know, Roderick Kip, Kipling wrote, wrote that poem, If, I mean, he was that guy who could win and lose money and never complain about it. He, he just stayed in the game. So he taught me a lot about perseverance and not take yourself too seriously and everything else. And so good advice. So he was a wonderful mentor and he um, treated people well. He was, he was intense, but treated people well. Is great, and then he had another partner, a guy named Lou Berkowitz, who um, who had, was a different elk. He was one of the founders of Kaufman Abroad, uh, the home builder, the big home builder. He had married Don Kaufman's um, uh, sister and worked for Eli Broad. And um, you know, Eli, you know, and you know, Kaufman Broad went public, and Eli Broad was a legend, and all this other stuff. So he had he had understood building up businesses from small to large. He was a lot more intense. But he and he was also taught me the value of straight talk like he he could be very, very hard on people, but it wasn't for ego reasons. It was because he had, a you know, he wanted to be very clear about what he wanted. And it, it gave me some of my bluntness and my, you know, absolute transparency, um, you know, a little kinder delivered probably than he did. But back then it was legal to deliver it the way he did it. I don't think today it would be legal to deliver it the way the way he did it. But the combination of those two were perfect. Um, one guy very structured and very direct. Another guy, you know, with a great sense of humor and, um, you know, a can-do, you know, the sky's the limit attitude with a lack of structure. And it, and it really did, did well by me. Well, you, I, you, they, they certainly did well by you. And, and I, I, I think whatever time you spent in New York, it's, I think it's still with you. I take that as a compliment because I grew yeah. up back East too. Yeah. So Sandy, tell me a little bit about, uh, or tell me about the genesis of Newmark Merrill. Yeah. So, so what happened was when I was at the, my first company, which was uh, West Venture, um, I had started their shopping center business um, and had built it up and we had got to maybe 25 shopping centers, some built, some, some bought and redeveloped. And, um, you know, and I was, you know, I was very happy doing that. And I, you know, I had maybe five employees and, um, was running that business and was thinking maybe I would even leave West Venture and start my own gig. Um, I was still plenty young. And, um, and then the founders of West Venture got bought out. And um, they got bought, bought out by an English public company. And um, they came to me when I was, I think I was about 27 and said, would you like to run the overall company? Um, the We were now a division of this public English company. And um, would you like to be CEO? And believe me, I knew nothing about our main business, which was housing. Housing, you know, they, they were building 500 single family homes a year. Um, they also had a mortgage company and, you know, all I knew about a ho housing was I lived in a house and they said, you know, well, you know, why don't you be CEO? And so I took over as CEO of the company. I went from having five employees to 110 employees. Um, we went from, you know, my, my little accounting to public accounting. And, um, hmm. and I did that for a few years and, but who was, I'm just curious, cause I've, I've done some startups before. Mm -hmm. Um, who was, how did you, who advising you like to, who, you know, to hire the HR people, the accounting people, or are you just, just doing it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it, um, you know, I mean, good question. I think, you know, we, one was, I was had instincts to sort of just do it too. 
several of the people, many of the people who were there when I started, you know, in the, at the company were still there. And, um, you know, and, you know, they were in housing and, and they helped guide me. And I was, you know, I was trying to figure out what big picture versus, you know, micro picture looks like. And, you know, but look, it was a great period of my life. I, you know, I had about three years of three, three and a half years of learning how to take a company. And by the way, the, the, you know, the, the economy was a little bit of a mess at the time. So I learned a lot about, you know, buying land and, you know, how residential is actually built and how neighborhoods are actually built and how to oversee a team and how to have an executive team and, you know, how to structure things, how board meeting works and, you know, corporate finance versus, you know, property finance. It was, it was, it was the best and worst time in my life because, you know, I also, you know, by then I had three of my four kids. Um, I was working. Oh, I was just going to, you had already had yeah. three kids by the time you became CEO at 27? Yeah, because I met my wife um, when I was 22 at the company, um, who ironically came from the same town where I built my first shopping center. So she'd actually seen my name, which helped because she she was good looking <laughs> and I wasn't. And at least I had a name and I was painfully shy. So it was very difficult for me. I would have never asked her out. So she ended up asking me out. And um, so we ended up having, we, we, you know, so yeah, we had three, three young kids and, you know, here I am trying to figure out a business, run a business, turn around a business um, and just do all those things that you do. Um, and still I'm a young guy who still wants to go out with his buddies and get drunk on thir- th- yeah, Thursday nights. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I do all that. And then, you know, when I turned 30, 31, you know, I was, I, I remember very distinctly, I was, I was called up to go look at a piece of property, um, a, a home we had built in Victorville. Um, and I drove out there on a Sunday, left my family and kids, and I went out there on a Sunday, and some lady was yelling at me about a stucco crack, and I had my construction team who was yelling back at her, and there was like a pit bull barking, and there was a kid inside who I'm sure was on opioids of some some sort, and he was make, playing you know loud music, and I literally on that ladder looking at the stucco crack said, you know, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This is not, this does not speak to me. So I went back and, um, you know, within just a few months, um, the decision was made that we would sell off the home builder to a local, um, um, you know, home building company. And I was going to buy out the uh, shopping center business and create a new company that would be focused just on shopping centers. And that's, that's what I did. And in uh, 1997, on April Fool's Day of 1997, uh, three of us, a guy named Jim Patton, who worked with me at West Venture, a guy named Brad Pearl, who I had met and tried to recruit at West Venture, but but actually didn't want to work for a large company. Um, and I started uh, Newmark Merrill and said, we're going to we're going to follow this simple rules. We're going to retails our specialty. We're going to be retail specialists. That's all we're going to do. We're going to be vertically integrated. We will do property management, marketing, leasing, accounting, all those functions internally. Um, and we will be absolutely tenant. Um, centric, which is we will make sure that our tenants have the best chance of being successful at our centers that they possibly can have. And if they do that, they'll be able to pay us more in consistent rent and that will be a good business plan. And that's that's what we did. You think that was the differentiator for, for you as you grew? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, think, I think a couple things. One is I think we always had the saying that you had to stand for something. So we were we were definitely not playing the you know, let's do whatever it takes to get the fee roll. We were definitely 
viewed ourselves as advisors. Two, we were very focused on having a very structured approach to property management. So operational excellence as opposed to transactional excellence, big, big difference. Relationships are, you know, long-term, not transactions. And um, I think very hands-on, you know, partner level, you know, you know, Jim, Brad, Sandy, you know, if you do business with, with our company, you do business with us. And it was very personalized. And, um, and I think that that stood us well. Um, at a time where management, the, the, the need to manage a center was really, you know, fourth or fifth on the list of things you had to be good at. And our company was number one, which is once you build it, make sure those tenants do well and that you have the best environment in the trade area. Well, I couldn't, can't disagree with that approach and look at the results. Um, well, tell us, tell me now a little bit uh, about your day-to-day role today at Newmark Merrill. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's varied, so it, 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 it's great. I mean, the irony is I love what I do. Um, I can't imagine not doing it. It's it's not like, you know, hey, you know, when, do you, when, when can we end and, you know, start traveling the world, right? I, I just... You know, I just I love my environment, and the day to day is 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 good because our team is. You know, I'm surrounded by people who've been together um, many many um, longer than ten years, a lot over twenty years, um, and you know the majority, but the vast majority over five years at least. So we're surrounded by people we've worked together a long time. You know, our our goals. Um, you know, are always, how can we improve the communities we are in? And so there's a lot of social elements to what we're doing as far as supporting tenants and do, doing things that feel good to do, right? Helping helping local school, helping, you know, first responders, you know, being the center of a community. And, you know, my job is, you know, one, to, you know, make sure deals that we get started, you know, get the momentum and get the, the business plan behind them that, we think is going to be successful. Um, so on new stuff, I'm spending a lot of time. And then on the stuff we already own, uh, a lot of that time is spent on making sure whatever we agreed to do, we're either doing, or if we're not going to do it, you know, having a good reason why not and picking a different direction. Um, so that's a good part of my time, just keeping our, our, you know, our program going. Our goal is never, we, we won fastest growing, you know, this and that, but that's never been our goal. My goal isn't to be twice as big next year as I, as I was a year before any of that stuff. If I could grow, great. I love what I'm doing. If I can buy other centers and make good money or build them, that's great. But I'm plenty happy to just continue improving what we currently have. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the major benefit that's, that's hit us, I think that the um, geomet- geometric change is happening is, you know, I came from a computer background. Technology's always had a role in our lives, but the last, you know, five or 10 years have seen an incredible influx of technology helping us both understand what's going on at a center level and helping us um, accelerate our results at our centers. And um, so I'm a big proponent and very active in analyzing and looking at different, um, you know, proper technology systems to see how they add value. Well, that's got to be an advantage. I mean, I think, you know, the industry has definitely, I think, gotten more adept at using technology, but I, I, I think that's got to be a huge advantage for you in the commercial real estate yeah, space. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's one of the two major, you know, you know, walls we have that separate us from a lot of our competition. And of course, 
you know, as time gone on, it's it's not rare to see companies, you know, start thinking about technology as an asset. But, you know, uh, you know, for me, you know, I was around in the days when they were just coming out with spreadsheets and my, my bosses wouldn't use spreadsheets, right? They only felt comfortable if they could do it with a, with a pen and a calculator. And I was trying to convince them to use at the time, VisiCalc or, or Lotus, and then, you know, eventually Excel. But yeah, today's world, you know, the, the ability to understand data and what it means and then what to do with it. Because the second advantage we have really leverages the first advantage we have. One is we now get data that is, you know, it was, was unthinkable, you know, a few years ago, like, you know, you know, retails, retail owners idea of data was when well, they got sales reports from half their tenants, maybe. Okay. And they were always backward looking and, you know, sometimes they were quarterly, sometimes they were monthly, sometimes they were yearly. And that was their idea. And then maybe they'd walk through and say the parking lot looks full or the parking lot looks empty, or I don't like the way this tenant looks, but that was sort of, that was sort of our data points that we were using today. We have data that tells us where our customers are coming from, how long they stay, where they go when they leave, you know, who, who, how, you know, how many stores they shop at. We see what our competitors doing. We see how we rank. All these things are great. And then the second part of what we do, second part, which is just as important, is, is, you know, we we use marketing, uh, customer outreach, um, you know, very deliberate targeting of our centers as entertainment hubs. You know, which 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 I mean by, you know, the the Santa arrival and the and the bingo and the outdoor movies and and you know the kids clubs and all these different things to to bring in the customer and measure what the customer then thinks of you and then adjusting right. So we get we get sentiment data. So if you look at the at the entire basket, not only do we now know what's going on, we can now impact what's going on in a, in, in real time and then see those results and then refine, and that's a, that's a that's a real advantage. Yeah, no question. Well, let me ask you about Bright Street Ventures. You are a co-founder and tell what what is Bright Street Ventures? So the idea was, and this happened in 2007, 2008, when the recession started happening, which is we started looking and saying, you know what, we need to have better platforms that our investors, our lenders, our other constituents can get data quicker, okay? That people at the um, at the center level, not just the CEO level, need to understand what it, what what we're learning about what's going on. And so, you know, we started investing in some technology and, but it was sort of kind of hit or miss. You know, my day job was sort of running a shopping center business. And then, you know, I was trying to get technology integrated. And we said, you know, this is not very effective. So in, in 07, we founded a company that we own that is 100% focused on prop tech and their job which was a, as full, was a full, it was and is a full-time job, was to continue to look at different kinds of property technology that's coming out, um, try them out, use, use our centers as a test tube for whether they're good or bad. Um, if we like them, invest in them. If we like them, you know, have an advisory role or some other role with those companies and, you know, continue to both innovate and, um, and evolve the technology that we that we wanted to use, and so today, Bright Street Ventures and you know, ha- has invested in over 45 different technology platforms, um, uses a wide variety of technology that 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 we, you know, some we started, we built out on our own, some were had started small and needed 
you know, a platform to try to expand and improve their their viability. Um, and some were going nicely and, you know, just needed either more capital or, you know, an investment of someone at my level, at a C level to give feedback. And so it's run by my brother, Mark, um, who had a lot of technology success prior to ever joining what, joining what I'm doing. Um, and, um, you know, we, I asked him if he'd consider joining, you know, you know, helping found this company with me, which he did. And, um, he runs it day to day and, uh, you know, we're, we're always on the outlook for different technology and integrating technology and making sure we apply the technology. Yeah. And it runs as an independent business. So it has its own KPIs. Awesome. That's great. Um, all right, let's talk about today a little bit, the current environment. Uh, let, I, I, I'm going to ask the, you know, maybe the obvious question, but, you know, has, has COVID or the pandemic, you know, has it merely accelerated changes in retail that would have happened anyway? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, I have mixed feelings about COVID. Um, on the personal side, it was an absolute disaster and, and a very close friend of mine, and a partner of mine, you know, died during COVID. So for me, you know, yeah, Sorry you, to hear that. Um, you know, I never want to forget, you know, sometimes we get so caught up in the business analysis of COVID, we forget the personal side of COVID. And for us, it was very direct. And it's, you know, that something like that affects us every day. But the, but, you know, on the, on the strictly business side, COVID was in a lot of ways a blessing because what COVID did was it accelerated so like you said, it accelerated certain trends, but accelerated them at exactly the right time. You know, as online was becoming more and more of a factor, you know, prior to COVID, everyone said, well, you know, you know, what, you know, isn't Amazon going to just put you out of business? I mean, this is always the example, right? Um, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. We, that, would, that, would, that was the yeah, tagline. Right? And, you know, I, I always look, you know, people always talk to me, you know, they, whenever I told them what I did, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years, you know, prior to that, everyone would love to hear all, oh, you know, shopping centers, with shopping centers, all excited, you know. You know, prior to COVID, they, I'd come up at some shopping centers like, oh, I'm so sorry, man, Amazon must just be in your lunch. It was like like the start of an ED commercial. It was embarrassing. It was like, oh, poor Sandy. He can't perform, you know, and and, and it, it was like that kind of, it was that kind of thing. And, you know, like, you know, my, my you know, my new fiance would sort of whisper what I did. My kids, you know, you wouldn't tell, tell people what their dad did. Um, I, I would have been better off, you know, being like, you know, being like in the drug business, right. Or porn, you know, so, so, so it was, um, so that was tough, but, but so gradually our retailers were adapting, but they were adapting way too slow, right. COVID comes along and people get shut down or severely restricted and they got to open other channels. They have to do it in a hurry. And so, you know, they opened up their, you know, in some cases, their delivery channel, in some cases, their online channel, they looked again at their customer service, they strengthened the relationship with their communities. You know, it really gave everybody a kick in the ass. And, um, and you know, it also proved to me, um, and I had my doubts on this part, whether the small entrepreneur really, you know, was a survivor or whether they just followed their feet, you know, day after day. And it turned out that no, the typical entrepreneur was pretty damn good and they were pretty damn resilient. And, you know, the facts are in COVID out of 2000 tenants, just over 2000 tenants, we lost 60, which, you know, for those 60, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a disaster, but, you know, losing 60 out of 2000 is 3%. So we would have, you know, that would have happened, at least half of that would have happened COVID or no COVID. Um, and, 
you know, what, what came out of COVID, we're much closer um, bonded with our tenants. They have more faith in us. For a long time, I've been trying to convince people that, you, you know, the building owner, I, I no longer call myself a landlord, okay, that the building owner or, or, the, or the retail manager was a friend, not a foe. But people aren't wired that way. The term "landlord" itself says says that. No, it's 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 in, it's inherently, it unfortunately, been sort of this acrimonious relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and one superior, one's inferior. It's a, it's a it's a bad relationship. So one, we became much strongly bonded. We survived together. We worked together. We try to do the right thing. They try to do the right thing, but an amazing amount of tenants did just the right thing. And if they needed help, they were very clear about what help they needed and they delivered their end of the bargain. Very impressive for me. Two, it made our connection with communities much stronger because communities wanted some stability during COVID and everything else in the world was turned upside down, but at least our shopping centers were in their neighborhood. They could walk there, they could spend time there. Um, whether they felt safe or not, they, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority still shopped for groceries and went to the dollar store and the drugstore and the, you know, the, you know, went where they could. They ate outside, but they made it work. Um, and and that, those relationships became much stronger. And then, then the, um, the relationship that the, the, our team, our, you know, the adaptability of our team got tested and those that adapted did very, very well. And, you know, so we did 20 murals in a year and we did, you know, 10, 10 outdoor seating areas. And we, you know, we reinvested, you know, millions and millions of dollars in our centers. And so it, it catalyzed yeah, innovation. It was fantastic. Okay. For that reason. And, and it, and it illustrated the direction we need to go for our future, which is that, you know, you don't need, and you, we can't see the future. Okay. No one, I mean, in January, I was in Harvard, which I take a weekly, uh, one week class at Harvard. I mean, when we said, what's the canary in the coal mine? No one said COVID. Okay. A month, a month later, we're shutting down stores and things are, things are going to hell. So, so, you know, being able to see the future is not one of our strengths and trying to predict the future is a hap hopeless task, but you got to be adaptable so that when whatever comes at you, you have a team that could pivot. And I, I think a lot of that came out of COVID. So is this a good time to be in retail? It, people think I'm crazy when I say this. I think it's <laughs> one of the best times ever to be in retail. The, the, the confluence of data, okay, actionable data of tenants who are finding additional channels that they can make and, and profit off of, the value of quality locations that are established in a community that service the community is incredible. Okay, and the and the realization from both the retailer side as well as the community side that they want to support each other and they want to continue to create memories at retail is very very strong. The internet didn't kill it. COVID didn't. A pandemic didn't kill it. Um, I think we got some bright days ahead. Now, you know, I say that you know, first of all, I'm super superstitious, so um, I I say that with a huge caveat, which is, look, there's still there still is too much retail per capita in the United States. We've, we are over-retailed. Um, the, you know, online shopping is here to stay and it is very competitive. Um, and it applies, you know, it really appeals to your headspace. You don't have to go anywhere. You save time. It's and often it's cheaper and you don't have to deal with human beings that don't always treat you well. Okay. Um, but you know, I, I think for, for the right centers with the right mix, with the right level of customer care. No, this is the best time to be in retail, if you ask me. Wow.
That's optimistic. I like to hear that. Uh, I want to remind everyone, uh, we are talking to Sandy Siegel, who is the founder, chairman, and C- CEO, and president. Too many, actually. Yeah, I got to lose some of these titles. <laughs> Newmark Merrill Companies. So let's, uh, we're uh, closing in on uh, the last few minutes talking with Sandy. I know, Sandy, you're involved with many community and nonprofit organizations, industry associations. So tell us and tell our listeners a little bit more about your volunteer work and why yeah, it's important yeah. to you. So great question. And it's it's probably the single most important thing we, we can do, both from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective. You know, I'm a believer in, you know, the saying to whom much is given, much is expected. And I, you know, every part of my life, I've had the best you know, support and luck that I ever could have had. And, you know, whether I had money or didn't have money, you know, to have, you know, loving parents and be in an environment where I felt I could achieve anything was, was a true gift. And it started when I went to this at-risk camp. I mentioned Camp Max Strauss when I was young and, you know, probably the counselors were 18 years old, but they were giants to me and they were mentors. And, you know, you realize these people had no reason, you know, your parents sort of got to love you, but, you know, these were people that didn't, you know, they had no stake other than trying to do the right thing and take care of people. And I think that's, that's what, what we need to do. So, you know, so for starters, I'm very still involved in that camp. I'm, um, you know, I'm on Jewish Big Brothers. I'm on the board of Jewish Big Brothers. I'm on the Camp Max Strauss, now called Camp Bob Waldorf Foundation. Um, to support that. Um, I'm also on the Jewish Federation board. Jewish Federation was a place my mom called when she didn't know what else to do with a seven-year-old while she went to work. So, um, and then they stepped up. Um, just for the record, Camp Max Strauss and now Camp Bob Waldorf, even though it's owned by the Jew- Jewish Big Brothers, Big Sisters, 80% of the people they serve are not Jews. So the idea of, of taking care of people who, you know, come from different places or different backgrounds is, is sort of ingrained in us. Um, so I'm very, very, very involved in that. And I, and I, and I do that. And, um, and the senators, we use the senators as a way to outreach to the local community. So as an example, only a week ago, we had 40 kids come from Anaheim Unified to our center in Anaheim. And we walked with them, told us, told them about our journey. About 10 of our team came and um, talked about what was their journey to through life to get to where they were today, described their jobs. We gave them a, uh, we gave them a tour of the center and then we sat down and gave them an exercise. You know, COVID just started today. You are the chair of the company. What decisions do you have to make? And, you know, the amazing kids and um, an incredible experience to be able to do that. Um, we're very active with homelessness. Um, we're big believers that, that, you know, everyone deserves to have a roof over their head and that homelessness is broken into two categories. Uh, the ones that a lot of people focus on, which is the mentally ill and the uh, addicts and, you know, those, those that may, you know, have, you know, you know, have problems that need, you know, very heavy social intervention, but there's a growing group of homeless who can't afford a place to live and um, who need, need to, you know, need, a, need some help. So, we spend a lot of our time, you know, packing bags and doing other things that, that help support the homeless and, you know, referring them to shelters and using our centers as information portals for that. Um, so, you know, we're, we're involved in a lot of different things. Um, you know, some, some religious, some community, um, you know, a lot we're dealing with giving back to children because I think, you know, it's true. Children are our future. Um, a lot of interns. We have a very active internship program. Um, I'm, I'm a mentor 
to um, a number of kids uh, who come through the system. Some are young adults. You know, where do you go after your first job? Uh, we just came back from Sacramento. We're very involved with with public policy. I just was in Sacramento on Wednesday. Um, I'm going to ask okay, you about that. So in a I'll, hold off, I'll hold off on that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say, say that. And um, you know, so you know, our goal is every community's got to be better because we're in it, and um, that's 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 our number one. We have we have three tenants to our business, and that's number one. If if we can improve each community we're in, that that's a good impact, and that's something that appeals to the people who we you know who we bring in our company. Yeah, I mean it's amazing the amount of uh, work you're doing in the community, and I'm really glad to hear about the internship program. And here at NAP SoCal, we've made it a priority to help develop the talent pipeline for commercial real estate, and we've. Um, forged a number of new partnerships with colleges and universities across the basin here. In fact, last night we had our first ever uh, real estate challenge, graduate real estate challenge between UCI and Chapman University. We've been doing it for 25 years between USC and UCLA. And last night was our first one here in Orange County. And it was just fantastic. And in fact, I think some of the students on the teams have already been offered jobs in our industry. So that's, that's kind of, that's the, that's the capstone of, of what we'd like to see happen when we do these kinds of uh, competitions between the universities. Um, well, you've got four kids and you've got a granddaughter. I, I, I saw that. Congratulations. So how, how's your work-life balance these days? Um, well, I mean, it depends, how, you know, how you want to balance, you know, I mean, <laughs> my, you know, it, my work-life balance goes like this. It, 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 it it's work impact life okay so so it's you know part of part of what we do you know part of what i want to leave my children with right your children are your biggest legacy that you leave behind and and the most important thing that i want them to understand is you know are we making impact so so look i work a lot and um you know and the truth is i love what i do like i said so it doesn't feel like work half my day though is spent on things that are not directly work related but is related to you know, giving back and, you know, all sorts of the charitable stuff we just talked about, plus policymaking, um, you know, making sure that people in public policy understand the role real estate plays in communities and employment and, 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 and all, all these other things. Um, and, and my kids share that with me. So, you know, so, you know, how much time do we have to sit around and just play? Not enough. Okay. How much time do we spend together? on you know picking organizations that we want to support and visiting with them and talking about them or engaging in politics and and look and, find, and now that they're older finding their passion of where they like to give and support we spend a lot of time there so um you look i i would love to always have more time but you know what my strategy has always been something like this is it's it's not the amount of time it's it's how you do it like i'm going to disney world with my my four kids and my granddaughter next week okay so you know, for five days, just me and them, and we're going to be in Disney World. Um, and, you know, New Year's, we, you know, and, and what kids at from their, you know, from 21 to 31 want to spend, you know, four or five days in Disney World with their dad, but this is what they want to do. So we, we, we do this regularly, or we have a trip, a regular trip, we all go to New York, and or we have a trip where we, you know, you know went to France, we, we skied, we do. So we pack it in, and we have enough times when we're really together and we can really focus not half in half out kind of time so 
that's that's the key there, just discipline in that. And then we have periods of time when we know we're going to be giving back, when we're walking the streets, giving away survival bags to homeless, or we're, you know, going to Washington D.C., where my son loves politics, and you know, meet with legislators, or you know, attend you know conferences, or any of that stuff. So you know, it. it I, look, I think we have a very full and fulfilled life. You know, I don't look at the goal in life as happiness because happiness is sort of a narcissistic term. It's more fulfillment. Did you accomplish this week something that makes you feel good about what you've done? And I think that's that's our goal, and that's what we're focused on. Yeah, well said. Well, let's let's turn to politics for a minute. Uh, you know, public policy advocacy is really important here at NAOP. Uh I did happen to see you at the uh, CBPA dinner yeah. a few weeks ago. Uh, congratulations on the award. Um, so, I mean, development, doing development in California get, yep. is getting harder uh, for, for all disciplines, whether it's retail, whether it's office, industrial happens mm-hmm. to be a target now because yep. they're making more money. Um, and so what's your message for our elected officials, uh, particularly in Sacramento? What, what do they need to hear from us? And, and do we need to do a better well, job see- as well? Well, let's take your last question first. We do we do an absolute crappy job of engaging our legislator, and you know I, I'm I'm very involved in both national and local politics, um, and we tend to be pretty good at talking to the community, you know, the, the communities we build in. So we know the city councilman, we know the mayor, and we support them financially. So that's that tends to be pretty common fare for a lot of us who do what we do. Okay, but the people in in the state house. We do a crappy job. We sort of ignore them in a way. We, we love to hear about what's happening in Washington and who's running and who's going to be president. You know, we know we need the mayor and the planning commission support, so we, we're good there. But, the, you know, the long-term education of people in the state house is, is incredibly poor. And I, and I knew that before, but I never appreciated it as much as I did during COVID when I had to call these guys and tell them why their bills just were going to not do anything like what they pl- thought that it would do. And, you know, these are good people. Okay, I mean, you know, again, I saw 12 of them individually on Wednesday, and I talked to them, many of them all the time on both sides of the aisle, although in California, you know, it's, you know, it's pretty much a democratic state, but, but there's, but there, but, you know, there's, you know, the Republicans are, have a role and they're doing some things. I'll just tell you, they're trying their best, but they have very limited information and there's a ton of bills that get flooded through there. And it's a simple matter of, you know, yeah, over 2000. Right. Okay. So you, you, you see this and. And look, there's plenty of constituency who speak much louder in the real estate business. And, and, and by the way, our messaging sucks. You know, when I started with the COVID messaging, you know, we, you know, I, I put together a little team of people like us who, who was going to go and talk to people. It started with PPP. So it started on the national side. And, you know, the messaging was going to be like, you can't believe how my income's gone down and you can't believe, you know, I, I've had to renegotiate my loans and all, you know, no one gives a crap. Okay. I mean, that's not a, that, that, you don't write country songs about, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble, you know, forwarding my Palm Springs vacation home. Okay. It's just not a, it's just not compelling. The story we had to tell, and it took us time to get up to speed was how many people do we employ? What do we mean to communities? What's the emotional attachment people have? What, what happens when a, when a retailer goes dark or a shopping center fails? What's that mean to that neighborhood? What does it do to home values? I mean, these are the, you know, what does it do to public safety? And we're just have not been equipped to have that, that dialogue. And, and, and also then sometimes we fall into absolutism. Any, any taxes are bad, you know, any restrictions are bad, you know, 
rather than, you know, and you sort of turn into sort of like the NRA or something. And, and you don't, you know, you don't want to do that. What you want to, what you want to do is you want to have a rational conversation um, about what, what, what value you add to the community and what help they could give you that would make a meaningful difference that matters to their constituents, their voters. You have one vote probably in their community, if any. They have, you know, thousands and they want their voters to know that, that you've helped, you know, bolster their community and we're one way to make that happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, first of all, I was honored to get the award. I mean, I do not deserve a reward named the Ernest Hahn Award because Ernest Hahn is, you know, like, you know, an idol and I'm nowhere near there. Um, you know, that's the reward you get when you're dead. I don't, I don't need that yet. So, so the, so the, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think we need to do it. And, and the message we need to tell, tell people is exactly what I just said. You know, look, I, I met with a assemblyman, I won't name him, but he was in, um, he, he used to be a councilman in a town that I did business and, you know, he really wanted to know, you know, why a certain bill he was supporting wasn't helpful to me. He thought it w was helpful to me. He thought I, and I had yeah. to explain why it wasn't. And he got it. He wasn't difficult. He just, no one had conveyed that message. So, you know, we have certain lobbyist organizations. They do a good enough job, but we got to get our butts up to Sacramento more and see these people face to face, spend the time. The good news is, I, I you know, I hate to put it this way, but you know, investments in supporting good assembly people and, and uh, senators, you know, um, state senators is very inexpensive relative to national campaigns. And it makes the biggest difference in your life. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that, you know, contributions move the needle, but visibility moves the needle. And one of the ways to get visibility is to support the people that you know are doing a good job. Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is a huge issue for us at NAOP, and I agree with you on the messaging and the education and the engagement, and we've got to come out of the shadows, and we're, yeah. we need to get there. And I, interesting, we had a local, met with the local mayor and, and small group of uh, commercial real estate members from NAOP, and um, to your point about how does it matter in their communities, I mean, you know, he voted for rent control, but he, um, which is something, you know, most of us in commercial real estate are not going to support. Um, but he went through the whole process of how, what it meant for his constituents and how he came about to make that decision. And I'm not saying people left that lunch agreeing with him, but they right. understood what he was saying and why he right. voted the way he yeah. did. Yeah. Sometimes we're too busy telling our own message that we don't understand what their message is. Um, and, um, and there's, there's a way to make both work together. Uh, I, I totally agree. All right. So two final two questions. Um, what do you think of the future in terms of our younger generation going into commercial real estate? Would you encourage them to do so? Yeah, no, I, I encourage them to do so. I think part of the answer to that question is, um, I think the big part of this question is, you know, what what discipline do they want to bring to that? To the, you know, what do they think they could bring? You know, I always, uh, just like any anything, I say, what's your unique selling proposition as a as a young person? So yeah, I, I you know, I mean, I have four kids. You know, I think a couple would be great in the business. I think a couple that's not going to be their passion, and it's not going to be, you know, you know where their skill set is best served. And I think this is, you know, real estate, entertainment, you know, and tech are kind of the places that people spotlight as well. I can make a lot of money, right? You know, that's not the should not be the driving force. It's can I get passionate about X, Y, or Z? So yeah, if you're if you're in the um, if you understand you know, data and you can bring that to 
to to um, a real estate platform or you really understand marketing and consumer behavior you can bring that to a platform or or you're super passionate about you know you know running a building and improving a community that's great um but as a get quick rich scheme um i don't think that's the reason to go into real estate well said final question what's what's next for you well you know, for us, we're continuing to build centers. As a matter of fact, we're uh, starting, we're going to break ground on one in Rialto very shortly. Um, we're looking at going in some additional states. Um, we're in three states right now. We want, we want to go into a couple others. Um, but the most important thing we want to do is recruit more, um, more people into the organization who have different perspectives than we do. Um, I'm loving the people. So you're recruiting right now. Oh, I'm recruiting heavily. Yeah. So send me your property we managers, a, your property. We have accounts. a job, we have a job board. Get your, get your, uh, open positions on our job board. Yeah. If the only thing you did for compensation for this call, and maybe I should be compensating you would be get me the <laughs> link to the job board. I'll make sure, I'll make sure we use it, but yeah, we, we want to bring in people with different perspectives. Um, you know, I, I mean, people look at diversity as a social buzzword. For me, diversity is what our populace is, and we need to populate our company so that we look at things through the right eyes. Not a, it shouldn't be through 58-year-old middle, you know, um, middle-aged Jewish Sandy's eyes. Okay, it should be through our, you know, you know, the people who are trying to serve's eyes. So we're bringing people in like that. We definitely want to hire people, and we want to hire strong people. Want to grow, grow this business because for me, the future is I'm going to spend more time on using our centers as platforms to help grow communities on the social um, support side. And, you know, we're going to let the next generation help move up and be successful and bring a generation behind them and keep doing this thing. Um, it's, it's a damn, it's a damn good thing. And then in between all that, I'm going to watch my seven month old granddaughter get older and maybe some of my other kids will, you know, uh, procreate and, uh, you know, I, I got a lot of things. And, I, and look, I mean, I want to solve homelessness. I mean, I, I really do. I really want to get people off the streets and return our neighborhoods to a place where, you know, everybody has a fair chance at, you know, the American dream. Now, that's a seminal issue for us. Well, thank you. Uh, great note to end on. Um, I'm Tim Jamal, CEO of NAP SoCal. We have just spoken with Sandy Siegel. I'm not going to read all your titles. Heads up, he heads up Newmark Merrill. And does so many other things. And Sandy, I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to speak with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks for your thoughtful questions. And thanks for your time. And, um, and I look forward to supporting you guys, whatever I can do.